Okay, one minute past the hour, we'll get started. Uh, thanks for joining everybody. I don't have any announcements this evening other than to say thank you for participating as always. Uh, this will be the last entry of the Genesis portion of the study, and we'll move on to Acts. So without further ado, uh, Robert, what do you have for us? Okay, hello, everyone. Thank you for coming back. And today, well, first of all, today we won't be reading uh, scripture because we read it all last time. So I will be referring to it, but, you know, it was a long scripture reading, three chapters, so I don't want to read that again just for the sake of time. But uh, that means that we can jump straight to the discussion. Let me start with some initial remarks that I think are going to be good and make people happy. Uh, first of all, I feel like this week is the payoff to the last two weeks. This is what I have been working towards in the sense that what I have been intending to do is get to whatever Genesis teaches, because I do think that it is true. I, I do think that it's in, inspired by God. And I was just trying to kind of get all of those other issues out of the way, the other questions that tend to come up about Genesis and science and all that. Well, now I feel like I've left that behind. And when it comes to the to the lessons that we can get from Genesis, I really think that we will agree regardless on whether you take it literally or not really virtually every Christian agrees on the main lessons. So I hope that today we kind of come together as far as that goes. Now, because this is not a comprehensive discussion of Genesis or even its first three chapters or whatever, I, I won't be covering everything that we can learn from the text. I am going to take more of like a minimum facts approach. What I mean by that is, you know, that is a phrase to describe certain arguments when you make an argument that relies on the facts that pretty much everyone agrees on, that's that's what I'm doing here. I'm presenting the ideas that if you were to ask any Christian from any tradition at any point in time, they would probably agree on this. Maybe some, I mean, I don't know, there might be some nuance they disagree with, but for the most part, they they would be, you know, on the same team. And the way that I want to do this is by comparing Genesis to the Enuma, the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian myth. Now, I know particularly if you're training theology, if you if you you know gone to seminary or something, your 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 mind might immediately go to this idea that Genesis was written as a polemic against other ancient myths. I am not taking that position. I'm not arguing against it either. I. I'm not coming from that standpoint. I'm only using the Enuma Elish as a sort of backdrop so we can compare Genesis to something and then we see why Genesis is so different, right? And then we can see what are some of the main lessons that it is teaching. So that's the only reason that I'm bringing the Enuma Elish into this. Okay, with all of that out of the way, let's uh, get into kind of the substance of the discussion. Okay, the First thing that we are going to see in Genesis, and this is just so unmistakable if you have any familiarity with other ancient myths, is the fact that there is no theomachy, no theogony, and no deicide. And I will explain those words here in a minute. But let me start by reading a little bit of the Enuma Elish. This is actually from the very first tablet. This is how it begins. When the heavens above did not exist, and earth beneath had not come into being, 
there was Apsu, the first in order, their begetter, and Demiurge, Tiamat, who gave birth to them all. They had mingled their waters together before meadow land had coalesced and reed bed was to be found, when not one of the gods had been formed or had come into being, when no destinies had been decreed, the gods were created within them. Lamu and Lamu were formed and came into being, while they grew and increased in stature, Ansar and Kesar, who excelled them, were created. They prolonged their days, they multiplied their years, Anu their son could rival his fathers, Anu the son equaled Ansar, and Anu began Narimad, his own equal. Narimad was the champion among his fathers, profoundly discerning, wise of robust strength, very much stronger than his father's begetter Ansar. He had no rival among the gods. His brothers, the divine brothers, came together. Their clamor got loud, throwing Tiamat into a turmoil. They jarred the nerves of Tiamat, and by their dancing, they spread alarm in, a, in Anduruna. Apsu did not diminish their clamor, and Tiamat was silent when confronted with them. Their conduct was displeasing to her, yet though their behavior was not good, she wished to spare them. Thereupon, Apsu, the begetter of the great gods, called Mamu, his vizier, and addressed him, Vizier Mamu, who gratifies my pleasure, come, let us go to Tiamat. They went and sat, facing Tiamat. As they conferred about the gods, their sons, Apsu opened his mouth and addressed Tiamat. Their behavior has become displeasing to me, and I cannot rest in the daytime or sleep at night. I will destroy and break up their way of life, that silence may reign and we may sleep. When Tiamat heard this, she raged and cried out to her spouse. She cried in distress, fuming within herself. She grieved over the plotted evil. How can we destroy what we have given birth to? Though their behavior causes distress, let us tighten discipline, discipline graciously. Mamu spoke up with counsel for Apsu, as from a rebellious vizier was the counsel of his Mamu. Destroy, my father, that lawless way of life, that you may rest in the daytime and sleep by night. Apsu was pleased with him, his face beamed, because he had plotted evil against the gods, his sons. Mamu put his arms around Apsu's neck. He sat on his knees, kissing him. What they plotted in their gathering was reported to the gods, their sons. The gods heard it and were frantic. They were overcome with silence and sat quietly. Ea, who excels in knowledge, the skilled and learned. Ea, who knows everything, perceived their tricks. He fashioned it and made it to be all-embracing. He executed it skillfully as supreme, his pure incantation. He recited it and set it on the waters. He poured sleep upon him as he was slumbering deeply. He put Apsu to slumber as he poured out sleep. And Mamu, the counselor, was breathless with agitation. He split Apsu's sinews, ripped off his crown, carried away his aura, and put it on himself. He bound Apsu and killed him. I know that that was a bit of a long reading, but it I feel like we can't understand the weight of Genesis without this this background. Notice how different the Enuma Elish is to Genesis. It, I dare say they have nearly nothing in common as far as main themes, of course. Um, first of all, the the Enuma Elish opens with multiple gods. Two gods in this case, Apsu, the first in order, and Tiamat. That Then they create or give birth to a number of other gods who then give birth to more gods and so forth. 
a theology, sorry, not a theology, a genealogy of gods. It's called a theogony. And it was very common in ancient myths, perhaps to all of them. I, I don't want to say that too definite, too definitively, because I just don't have that data. But as far as I know, that would be a common theme to all of ancient myths. Um, Genesis, however, has nothing of the sort, right? We have no genealogy of gods. Um, God is just him in the beginning. In the beginning, there is just God. Now, I want to address perhaps a little wrinkle there. Somebody could say, hey, but sometimes God speaks in the plural. Uh, it sounds like he's addressing a crowd. So some scholars think that in those passages, which, mind you, are not at the very first. They're not in Genesis 1.1. They come a little bit later. But even if there are other beings involved, that would be a sort of heavenly council that he is addressing, like a council of angels. There's never any hint in Genesis or throughout the Bible of other gods, right? Um, so there is no genealogy of gods whatsoever in Genesis. Um, by the way, and this is a debate that I don't want to get too far into because, you know, it, we could get derailed, but the way that most scholars take the plurals in the first uh, two and three chapters of Genesis is the regal plural. It is the way that a king would speak back in the day. And to some extent, we see this today. It's much more rare today. But essentially, a king even when referring just to himself, may use the plural, like you displease us, but he's just referring to himself. That's the regal plural. Um, so the fact that there are some plural tenses in Genesis does not necessitate this whole divine council theory. Um, that, that certainly has not been the main position throughout um, the ages. But at any rate, I don't want to get distracted with that. Uh, other people can bring it up if they're interested. Um, well, but notice the other thing in the Enuma Elish, not only do we have multiple gods, but they don't get along with one another, right? And they start, um, fighting and that, that idea of the conflict between the gods, that's what we call theomachy. And then eventually the theomachy ends in deicide. It ends in the death of a god. This, it, the reason I bring these up, and you may be thinking, Robert, why are you talking about the Enuma Elish? I'm just using it as an example. This is very common throughout ancient Near Eastern mythology. And again, we see none of this in Genesis. What do we see, right? We see, well, let me just read Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the Enuma Elish, we, we haven't gotten to that part, but the heavens and the earth are part of the dead bodies of the gods, particularly Tiamat. Um, in Genesis, nothing like that. Creation does not come about from some struggle. There is no even, there's no sign of a struggle. Uh, extremely different. So to kind of sum this up in a, in a you know, it, sort of in a, in a way that starts building this worldview, in the beginning, there are no two things. There's no two of anything. There's no two gods. There are no two forces, like in dualism, like a yin and yang. There's not even good and evil. In the beginning, there's only good. There's And, and this good, by the way, I don't mean it in some like 
mystical way, like this good in itself is some sort of force or energy. If if you reread the Enuma Elish, you'll realize that the gods are described as waters, right? Their waters had mixed. Nothing like that with God. God is a good personal being or a good mind of sorts or a good spirit, but certainly a being that is very powerful, is good, and has a will, right? It's personal in that sense. I don't mean personal as in my personal feelings or what have you. And this is just incredible. I mean, it really is incredible that that there's a myth like this. Or I won't call Genesis that because I don't want to f- further divide people on this, but the, that there is a theology that starts this way. This is completely unprecedented. Now, here I want to take it a step further than what we find directly in the pages of Genesis. So I do know that I'm I'm making a little bit of a leap here that would necessitate reading the rest of Scripture and perhaps a little bit of theology. But I think that the, this idea of not only monotheism, but what in what we might call perfect being monotheism or perfect being theology, meaning the one God is not just a, a flawed God of some kind, but it is a perfect being. It really answers a lot of questions that I don't think any other model can really answer. If you have a pantheon of gods, I think a model like that will fall to what's called the Euthyphro Dilemma, which is, you know, it's this question, is the good good because God approves it, or does God approve it because it is good? In other words, is good uh, something that is just contingent, that God could decide that this is good or that is good or whatever, or goodness is something that transcends God, right? I think that's a problem you run into when you have a uh, a poly theistic system. Now, if you have a system with no gods at all, not just atheism, but you could have a, you know, a dualistic system where these energies have always existed or something like that, even if you can if you can ground good, goodness in something, you certainly cannot have moral duties. You can never extend this goodness onto what a creature should do. This goodness is like the number two. It has no causal connection with anything. But notice that in the Christian model, goodness is a property of a being that is necessary. And again, I know that I'm going beyond the pages of Genesis. I know that I'm doing that. I'm just trying to fill in some of the blanks. Essentially, I'm purposely getting ahead of myself a little bit. And so goodness has always been what it is and could be no different because it is the property of a perfect being that could be no different. And so it it makes goodness something that is not just contingent, but also because goodness is personal in itself, it can give other beings moral duties and say, do as I do, be as I am, because I am good, but I'm also personal and I can create you with the purpose of being good. I know that I've said a lot of things and, and we could spend weeks on just this idea of goodness, but it's just incredibly powerful. Um, you know, we can talk more about it during discussion if you guys would like that. Now, what other things do we see in Genesis? We see that God is not like nature, right? Uh, let me read again from the Enuma Elish just to give us a comparison point. 
Marduk gathered Tiamat's foam. This is after Tiamat has been slain, by the way, in the story. Marduk gathered Tiamat's foam together and made it into clouds, the raging of the winds, violent rainstorms, the billowing of mist, the accumulation of her spittle. He appointed for himself and took them in his hand. He put her head in position and poured out. He opened the abyss and it was sated with water. From her two eyes, he let the Euphrates and Tigris, and Tigris flow. He heaped up the distant mountains on her breast. He bored wells to channel the springs. He twisted her tail and wove it into the derma. He set up her crotch. It wedged up the heavens, just the half of her. He stretched out and made it firm as the earth. So in the Babylonian story, the clouds, the wind, the rainstorms, the ground itself, they are literally, in the story anyways, part of the body of a god, or they're at least physically connected to a god. So even if we somehow argue that the gods and creation, the created order, are not entirely the same, they're certainly not entirely different. Well, in Genesis, we find something completely different, right? We find that in the beginning, God is already there. And then how does creation relate to God? God simply speaks it into being, right? We hear God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate water from water. Or God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. Or God said, let the land produce vegetation. Or God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky. God is not like creation. Creation is not made of God. It is made by God, right? Um, of course, this sets the Christian worldview apart from many views that are very popular today. The idea that the universe is God or that God is in everything in the sense that they are united and they're one with one another. Um, certainly, the Babylonian story doesn't have that mystical approach. It's much more literal, like creation is the body of a god. It, like I said, in a very literal sense. Um, but the Christian story is not like that. God is separate and distinct from creation. And that means that God is before anything else is. And even if nothing else existed, if everything else stopped existing, God would still be. He is the beginning and the end. He is the great I am, right? All of those statements make sense when we realize this, that God is not like creation. He always is. Creation, on the other hand, is contingent. Okay. Another big takeaway from Genesis that, that kind of sets up our worldview and it's going to have huge implications for science is the idea that nature is not spiritual. And let, let me explain what I mean. This is really unobjectionable. I think sometimes people misunderstand this. But first of all, by nature, I'm not including animals or people. I'm just talking about anything that is inanimate. Um, and, well, actually, before I get further into that, again, let me give you some background using the Enuma Elish. I'm, I'm reading from there again. He placed the height of heaven in her, Tiamat's, belly. He created Nanar, entrusting him the night. He appointed him as the jewel of the night to fix the days. And month by month, without ceasing, he elevated him with a crown, saying, shine over the land at the beginning of the month, resplendent with horns to fix six days. On the seventh day, the crown will, will half size. 
on the 15th day, halfway through each month, stand in opposition. When Samas sees you on the horizon, diminish in the proper stages and shine backwards. Okay. What do we see here? The night in the Babylonian story is, and by night, I mean as like day and night, um, the, you know, the time of, of day, um, is actually a god. It is a personal being. And the only reason that the night behaves the way that it does, the reason that it comes every night, and that it stays for as long as it does, and that it is, you know, shorter in the summer and longer in the winter, is because this personal being is behaving according to instructions that he was given. But presumably, at least, this personal being could disobey, right? It could act differently. So maybe if I offer something to this God, I could entice him to make the night longer or shorter or darker or what have you, right? But notice that that is not at all the Christian understanding of, of nature. Nature is not spiritual in the sense, again, let me let me be clear with this, that nature is not um is not made up of personal beings that are choosing to behave in certain ways. There's not a spirit of the water or a spirit of the sky, a spirit of the sun and a spirit of the night, a spirit of the trees and of the flowers and all that. Nature is just that, is an inanimate object or collection of objects and they have been set in motion according to certain principles now this may seem so unobjectionable so unimpressive to us today but it really shouldn't seem that way this is one of the most amazing changes in thinking that have ever happened in human history. And I'm not saying that because I'm a Christian. You could read a number of historians that could tell you the same thing, and they might not be Christians. This idea of nature being spiritual was the prevalent view at the time. And frankly, it may still be the prevalent view today. Um, I don't have numbers as far as like a survey where I can um, really give you, you know, some specific data. But uh, think of people who use crystals, for example. Um, they believe that nature is spiritual, that there are these mystical energies. Um, now, to be fair, let me backtrack a little bit. Some people who use crystals, crystals, they may claim that it is science, that these energies are not spiritual, that they are just physical. But generally speaking, uh, I think the use of crystals involves spirituality, right? Um, and so they're trying to influence these spirits that are in the air and the water and in everything else for that matter. Well, uh, that's not the Christian worldview. Now, there's also one more addition that Genesis makes to creation that is really key and sometimes we miss it, is the fact that creation came about by the design of a mind in a mind that is not altogether different than ours. Now, I'm not saying that we're the same as God, like a one-to-one -one equivalency, but because we are made in God's image, this mind that created the universe shares something with us. We're similar in some regard. Well, 
that means that the world around us can become intelligible. It is something that we can understand. And again, you might think that is so plain vanilla. Literally everyone believes that. That was not the case at the time. And again, it's really not the case today either. Or what I'm saying is not all people today believe that. Many people believe the the universe to be this mysterious thing that really cannot be understood because it again just mysteries built into it as opposed to intelligibility. Um in this this piece of of the Christian worldview has been key to the development of science. This is something that historians, Christians and not Christians alike will will agree upon. Now not all of them there, there are some historians who who kind of go against the grain on this, and I want to be honest about that. But I do think that the consensus by Christians and non-Christians alike is that really it is this Christian worldview that allowed the development of science. And I, I cited some articles. They're not particularly scholarly, the ones that I put on my blog, because I was trying to make this approachable. So let me give you some examples. I'm going to read from, from this article that I think makes the point... Um, perhaps overly kind of cutesy and simplistically, <laughs> but, but but they're there. Um, it says, for example, laws up above. The ancient Chinese had incredible technology, but not science as we know it. Why? Because while they were intelligent, they did not believe in a higher intelligence, not in the Bible sense. They didn't think there were ever present, always applicable laws of nature that govern the universe. They went out into the world and tamed it through technology, but they didn't seek to press it into the deeper laws of the universe. That's, you know, that's because they didn't have Genesis 1. They didn't believe that in the beginning God, they didn't believe that through his word and ordered cosmos was created that shows all the hallmarks of dependable regularities. And it goes on. Now, this next one is more interesting to me. World out there. The ancient Greeks were smart cookies. All philosophy is a footnote to Plato, as they say. Philosophy, mathematics, art, and literature were all spheres of excellence for the Greeks. Science, not so much, because science requires you to believe in a stable and predictable world out there that's open to investigation. Science occurs when you make repeatable observations and check your theories against the cold hard facts. But Greeks didn't believe in cold hard facts. They believed in minds, in reason, in laws, but not in empirical investigation. And let me give you an example here to explain what this means. For example, the Greeks were convinced that the planets moved in a circular uh, shape because the Greeks were convinced that the world out there had to be modeled after the very elegant concepts that you could just think about, right? So because they could think about geometry and come up with these elegant shapes, then the world out there surely was modeled just after those shapes. That would be the most elegant way the world could be. So they didn't really care to look if it was truly a circle, the, the shape that they, you know, their planets were traversing. Um, because we believe that a mind has made the universe and this mind could have made the universe this way or that way, as Christians, we can't assume that, right? I can't assume the mind made certain decisions because he might as well have made different decisions. I actually have to go out there and investigate. Um, and then, you know, it 
it goes on. We could we could delve deeper into this, but for the sake of time, I will move on. Um, because there's there's other things I want to cover. Now, by the way, if we don't cover all the material I have for today, today, then I can leave a little bit for next week, and then we can introduce Acts next week. So uh, I'm not going to hurry too too much. Well. What is the the next huge point that we could draw out of Genesis? Well, this idea of man being made in the image of God. Again, let me go back to the Enuma Elish so we have some background. The Enuma Elish actually repeats a common theme in the ancient world. It said, and again, quoting the Enuma Elish, when Marduk heard the God's speech, he conceived a desire to accomplish clever things. He opened his mouth, sorry, address, addressing Ea. He counsels that which he had pondered in his heart. I will bring together blood to form bone. I will bring into being Lulu, whose name shall be man. I will create Lalu, man, on whom the toil of the gods will be laid that they may rest. Okay, so... In the Babylonian myth, why is man created? So that, quote, the toil of the gods will be laid on him. Um, now, you might remember that last week, I mentioned an Egyptian myth that essentially answered that question the same way, the question of why was man created? Well, it was because the gods were tired of working. In the case of the Egyptian myth, they were tired of digging ditches, quite literally. And so they're like, we need somebody to do our work for us. And they created mankind. Now, in Genesis, why is man created? In again, it is so different. This is why I'm I'm reading the Enuma Elish. I'm trying to show that I'm not exaggerating. I'm not trying to over dramatize. Genesis is beyond groundbreaking. Why is humankind created? Well, we can read it. This is from this is from Genesis 1, 26 through the first part of verse 28. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image after, after our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, this again is shocking and remarkable. Man is created to be like God, at least in some sense, and we will discuss that here in a little bit, to rule the earth and to be fruitful and multiply. Now, let's discuss some of these in turn. To be fruitful and multiply. We actually see this theme again in Genesis. It comes up in Genesis 2, verses 21 through 25. I will read that. Um, it says, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was asleep, he took part of the man's side and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the part he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites his wife sorry, and unites with his wife, and they become one family. The man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Hey, okay. 
it I know that I'm going to make some people upset by saying this because of our modern sensibilities, but it's rather unmistakable. I would say it's inarguable that one of the main reasons for which we are created or one of the main features of mankind is this this uh, mission to marry and have children. Now, here I am going to put in a caveat before I, I make too many people upset. Uh, we could go to verses of the New Testament that make it abundantly clear that there's not a moral duty to get married in the sense that one has not sinned if one remains single. And I am not disagreeing with that. I am not taking away from that one bit. But I fear that in our modern world, that caveat has become this exception that is swallowing the rule. That now people are like, oh, marry or don't marry. It's whatever. It doesn't make a difference. I'm sorry, but I think if if you read Genesis, you, you're not going to walk away with that conclusion that it makes no difference. It's like, no, marriage and having children is one of the original purposes of the creation of mankind. Um, and I think if you read Paul, like if you don't just read one verse, but read a collection of his verses, you know, read a ver verse before and a verse after or whatever, you will see that generally speaking, when when Paul talks about singleness, he is emphasizing the fact that if you remain single, you can dedicate yourself entirely to God, dedicate yourself entirely essentially to the ministry. Uh, Paul never speaks of it like, ah, oh, stay single or get married, whatever, makes no difference. That That's not the case. And I quote some verses in, in the blog if you would like to go read them for yourself. Um, but again, what, whatever, however you want to tie up all of those loose ends that I'm leaving out there, um, we got to contend with the fact that, quote, it is not good for the man to be alone in Genesis 2. Uh, marriage and childbearing is part of God's plan for us, generally speaking. Although, again, being married, getting married is not a moral duty. You're not a sinner if you're not married. Okay. Um, Second thing that I mentioned, I'm going in reverse order, actually. Rule the earth. We have been made to rule the earth. Again, our modern sensibilities are sure to be offended by this. Um, we're very modern. We're very egalitarian. We're very environmentalist. So we think, oh, what right do we have to rule the earth? Well, I would say the right has been given to us by God himself. Um, now, ruling the earth, can the phrase itself can sound very ominous. But it doesn't mean something negative. Um, it it means to bring into order, right? We are God's representative on earth. So our ruling of the earth should be good. If, if we want to think of it like this, it's like God's blessings for the earth come through us. We are supposed to be agents of blessings. Now, because we live in a fallen world, we're not to that point in the story. Um, we don't always act that way. That doesn't mean that it makes it right. It doesn't mean that being cruel to animals or polluting or whatever is correct. Uh, it is not. Uh, we are to rule, but we sh we should do so rightly. Uh, now that, you know, to rule something well implies knowing the thing that you are administering, right? Uh, the thing that you are ahead of. Um, and so this duty would, you know, would necessitate that we explore the world and understand it and then treat it correctly. And yeah, we we are given 
this uh, commission. And finally, this is probably the last thing that I'll get to discuss today, but that's okay. Well, I mean, I guess I'll see if, if there's comments or whatever. But we are made in the image of God. Now, we could spend an entire session just on this phrase. Um, and I would give you different views and, and, you know, we could look at pros and cons and all that. Um, but because this is not an exhaustive exploration of Genesis, but a sort of primer, I don't mind sticking to the mainstream position, what Christians have thought of throughout the ages. Now, again, this is not the only view, um, but but I do think it's fair to say that this is the mainstream view. Um, or actually, before I give you the mainstream one, let let me uh, let me do a bit of an exercise. You know, what if I if I were to ask you what makes a person a person? What is the Imago Dei? Well, probably the answer that somebody would give is the ability to reason. Or they may say something like the ability to make moral choices, something along those lines. Now, that's not completely off the mark. I'm not saying that that is a completely wrong answer. But I think if you, if you press against that answer a little bit, you will see that there are problems. Like if, let's say, you know, to be a person is to have the ability to reason. Well, what if I give you counterexamples like a fetus or a person who is in a coma or truly a person who is asleep, right? Um, well, they don't have the ability to reason. And so they're not persons. They might be human, but not persons. Um, and so they, they're like a human body, essentially, but they're not a human person. So essentially, if somebody's asleep, you should be free to kill them because you haven't killed a person. Now, that sounds silly, but but I mean, these are real arguments that people make. Well, but like I said, I don't think that this idea of the ability to reason is completely off the mark. Can we maybe give a slightly better answer that could survive those counterexamples that really gets to the essence of the Imago Dei? Well, I, I posted a long, long, long uh, quotation from a from a peer-reviewed journal in the blog if you want to go read it, but I'm going to summarize it briefly so we can get to discussion. When we say that the Magadai is the ability, and that's the key word, the ability to reason or the ability to make moral judgments or whatever, that is what's actually called uh, functionalism. It's the idea that what determines your personhood is your ability, the, you, the functions that you can perform. And that's really not actually the traditional Christian view of personhood, of the Imago Dei. Uh, that is a very naturalistic understanding of personhood, um, right? For using science, we can, we can look at your brain and we can look at your brain functions and determine that, yes, you do have the ability to do this, that, or the other, and so I'm going to call you a person. Um, in this functionalism, or this ontological functionalism, it um, it will lead to the conclusions you would expect. Uh, somebody who holds this view is probably okay with abortion, because um, fetuses, at least of a certain age, uh, by that I mean at a certain point in the gestational period, do not have these functions. Well, 
So what is the Christian view? What is the Magadai? Again, traditionally speaking, I am aware that there are other possibilities. But traditionally speaking, it's actually not ontological functionalism, but ontological personalism. Okay. In this view, put simply, is the idea that we are a substance, that there's an essence to a person. Um, and this, this essence, it, it comes before function, right? It is what we are, which precedes what we are able to do. Um, again, uh, maybe we'll develop this more in discussion, but it's it essentially the distinction is it's not that we are able to be rational, it is the fact that we are a rational soul. Okay. And notice the distinction. We are a rational soul. And because in this world we also have a body, and to act in this world, our soul and our body have to both be able be, be able to act in a certain way, it is entirely possible that you might lose functions, but you don't lose your essence. You still are a rational soul. So, you know, if I'm in a terrible motorcycle accident tomorrow and my brain is mush, because my my body is, is broken, my soul now cannot interact with this physical world in a way that would allow me to, to reason or do just about anything, but I still am a rational soul. So my dignity as a human being has not disappeared. Okay, so that would be the traditional view of the Imago Dei, that we are a rational soul, not necessarily that we are able to use reason. I hope that distinction is clear, um, but it's a key, key distinction, because if we are a rational soul, then a fetus is a person and deserves dignity. Somebody who's in a coma is a person and, and deserves dignity. A person who is asleep is a person and deserves dignity. Um, you will, I think if you read that article that I posted and summarized, you will see that this idea of ontological personalism really it solves a lot of issues, like the like the issue of identity. Um, you know, by that I mean, let's say that I cut off your arm. Are you still you? Yes, right? If I, you know, if I cut off the other arm, are you still you? Yeah. So how is it that although I'm removing your parts, your identity remains unchanged. Well, because your identity is not found in any of those parts, but it is found in your soul, right? Um, so that's those are some of the implications of, again, the traditional view of the Imago Dei. Um, okay, I wanted to get to the original plan of creation, which which was good, and then the fall, that's about the last big theme that I have not discussed, but uh, let's open it up to questions and comments, and we can we can talk about that next time. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Robert. Uh, as usual, guys, if you'd like to participate in the discussion, ask a question, raise a point, just write the word question in the chat. Just the word question will suffice, and I'll bring you in in the order in which I receive them. I have uh, several thoughts, but I will keep it as simple as possible, and we'll let as many of our um, participants chime in as would like to before I get to some of the other ones. Um, I obviously, when, when you're talking about the nature of, well, God and nature, those are themes that are, uh, that, that are, are the reasons why I'm here in the first place. So, but those are deep. So I'll leave them for a little while, uh, toward, to, if we have some opportunity to speak about it later, just on points of fact, 
I, I guess I was aware that that Genesis is an outlier in terms of a monotheistic theology. But am I understand? Am I understanding this correctly? That it's the first that we know of that there's, or did I misunderstand that? Is there a, a monotheistic theology that predates it? If if there is, I don't want to speak too definitively because there might be something I don't know. If there is some other monotheistic, um, you know, myth, ancient myth in in that sense. I'm unaware of it, and it certainly didn't create a large religion. So there might be some outliers somewhere. Um, but, uh, yeah, if it, I'm unaware of it. That's all, that's all okay. I can say without researching this more extensively. Yeah, I guess I just didn't realize the extent to which it actually is rare or an outlier. Uh, so if it's if it's basically history's first, that's that's well, that's obviously more unique than I realized. I guess you can't say more unique, right? People get mad when you, it's either unique or it's not. It's it's yeah. unique, and I didn't realize the uniqueness prior. Uh, Denby, if if you're ready to chime in, go ahead. Yeah, um, yeah. Just for um, just wanted to say that, um, uh, Robert. I think that, uh, an interesting point to bring up is about what you you've the you the the word you've you've used to describe this, uh, you say the genre, um, you know, myth, as, as in the category of the kind of story it is. But I think I think that that, that uh, kind of clouds over what you're really getting at, which is it's a uh, mytho-history, is, you know, in the sense that, um, and I think that the issue here is that um, how are you supposed to tell the story of something that happens for the first time ever? You know, I mean, when you are the the first creature to become uh, truly conscious and then self-conscious, I mean, you don't have a genre of history preceding you, you know, to to describe. You know, I mean, you know, if you're the first creature to be, you know, to be afraid for you were naked. You know, and it's like um, uh, you can you can uh, understand the kind of the, the the distinction there because it's like you look at the um, you know in the garden uh, clearly there the, it's it's very clear that we could understand the other animals because the serpent could speak to Adam and Eve and they could understand but uh, after they're naked and afraid then they they're divorced forever from that that realm you know and so so like we you know you have to really study to understand what animals are saying you know it's not like you know i mean the the i think there's you know we, we see the instinctive understanding of prey of what their predators are and so on and all kinds of things like that, and so I think that's one of the things about this is it's like um, we we have to call it myth because that's sort of you know, the category that we have to put in that we've put it in, t- in terms of genre, but I think that genre is kind of um, misleading in that sense. Do you have thoughts on that, Robert? No, I mean I think I I really agree with Demi on this and. When I use myth, I 
I mean, genre, uh, but I I could just as equally use the term mytho-history, meaning something that is the genre of myth to express true history, like factual history. And so really, I, I agree. And if that term would be more helpful, uh, I mean, I certainly would not mind using that term because I think that that is accurate. Thanks, Demby. Uh, Gilgamesh, if you're ready, go ahead. Okay. Um, this is for something for you, Matt, I want to mention. I remember Blonde brought this up. Did God create all the gods? You know, like the Greek gods, they're, yeah, he created everything. That means he created the Greek gods, the Egyptian gods, all those gods. Do you understand? Because Blonde, I remember she asked that question, did God create all the other gods? Yes. He created all the other gods. He created everything. When he created the universe, he created all the gods. He created yeah. I guess now I'm confused because would that mean that there's some sort of polytheistic truth or are those just false stories? Well, I mean, think about it. He created everything in the universe that's including all the gods. And he, then he created, you know, like he created, you know, the angels. He created the gods and then he created man. Uh, well, now now I'm confused. Robert, do you have thoughts on this? Because I... Yeah. I guess my understanding would be that those gods are are false. I suppose they're not. Well, they serve. Not, they serve under him. Who who are I guess who are these gods in the in the where do they fit in the Genesis teaching? I suppose. Okay, that's where where he's get, having trouble with. What do you think, Robert? Well, I so I would say that that these other gods are are false gods. So they're not real gods. So yeah. uh, there's there's never any mention in in anywhere in the Bible of God creating other gods. So that would be uh, kind of a syncretism, this idea of, of taking other religions and trying to make them work with the Bible. Now, let me mention uh, one potential kind of different way of looking at this. Uh, there's there's a theory that is gaining a little bit of popularity lately um, that says that some of the, the gods of other cultures they're not really gods, but they are spiritual beings, meaning that they are demons who are deceiving them. Um, so you could take it that way. Now, it it doesn't say that explicitly in the Bible. You you kind of have to read between the lines here and there. But there are there are some people, especially lately, I would say, especially in like the last ten years, that opinion has become a little bit more popular. But traditionally, no, the answer would be very simple in the sense that these other gods are not. They're not true gods. They're not yeah. spiritual beings. Yeah. They're just fake. They don't exist at all, period. Um, Rev so. Rogers has a thought here that I'll just add because I think it's uh, it helps illustrate the point. But he's saying God created the other Elohim. Is that the way I pronounce the word? Uh, or spiritual beings. But he is the one uncreated Elohim. Uh -huh. So yeah. maybe that's kind of what you're... Like there might be... There are beings of maybe a similar dimension or something. Uh, yeah, but he, but he is like unique. He's, in, he's the one. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, that would look be at, like his angelic court. Well, look at Buddha. You know, Buddha took what was it? Seven steps and he pointed up and down. And, you know, when he was a child from his mother, he like took seven steps and he pointed up to the heavens down to, you know, one finger up, one finger down. So, you know, and he, what did he do? He basically meditated, fasted and found Nirvana, you know, and he wasn't, he's not a God, but they treat him as if he is a God, you know, that's what, you know, sort of like with these others, like, He's not really a God. He is like a son of God, but people saw him and they followed him, even though he didn't tell anybody to follow him. And 
So they sort of treat him as if he is a god, even right. though he never said that he was a god. Unlike like the you know Zeus and everything, they're false gods. Buddha never confesses okay. that he's a god. That's what I was trying to get at. Sure. Is that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you for the thoughts. I want to make oh, sure no, we, no. we leave some time for the, the rest because we're yeah. getting close to the top of the hour and we got several requests okay. to speak. So thank you for your thoughts. Uh, Gilgamesh. I appreciate it. No that. problem. Have a good night. Uh, Greg, go ahead and chime in if you're ready. Yes. Hello, Matt, Robert, and everybody. Um, just one quick comment. I think it's it's cool to see how important that that the thing that um, that Adam stated, this now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, Jesus, in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees came, they tested him. They said, asked him a question. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any any reason? And Jesus said, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus says, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man not separate. So we see that Jesus, even when he's confronted with divorce and marriage, he he himself goes back to the beginning, and and Adam's quote as the as the bedrock for for marriage, and why you know it's important that God wants us to stay, you know, husband and wife wants to to stay together in a bedrock yeah. for society. It's um it's really interesting to come to that sort of backward for me because of course I've I've been observing politics this whole time and I've found interest in scripture and religion and faith through that. Uh, reason being that we have undone a lot of that or we are undoing a lot of that. That fundamental rule you start messing with that and look how many things fall apart. And I've never read uh, Genesis. I have read it before in like an academic setting without this intent of looking for that fundamental truth. And it's, it's funny to come back to it uh, this way and see like, yeah, uh, rule one was there the whole time and we couldn't help but meddle with it. And we're going to learn the hard way. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's undeniable that piece of the truth, you know, like to me, I, I, I don't need any further demonstration. Start messing with that. You will suffer consequences. Yep. Do you have thoughts on that, Robert? Oh, I, I agree. And I'm glad that this was pointed out that even Jesus goes back to Genesis, like marriage and childbearing are part of creation. Like it's part of the original plan. So when we mess with marriage, we're messing with one of kind of the pillars of, yeah. of the purpose of humankind. Everything's going to go wrong. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. Good night. Uh, you as well. I think we, uh, let's see, uh, Soren, is looking to speak. Go ahead, Soren. Hey, uh, <clears throat> good evening, everybody. It's actually Jason, but I uh, didn't. There's two Jasons, so I just ah. decided to use that name. Um, <clears throat> so this is a great Bible study. I just want to say I like the angle you take, Robert. Um, the term that was brought up to me about ten years ago by a teacher, how you say mytho history, he would call it theological mythology. He would say it's a profound truth that may or may not be provable. And as a born-again believer, obviously, I believe the Bible is true. But one thing I can always say to somebody who is not necessarily a Christian, based on Genesis, is that the truths that we can derive from this book, from the first three chapters specifically, uh, they can't be argued against, even if you don't believe the Word of God is authoritative. And that's something I noticed. The more you read it, 
the things that it describes about humanity, human nature, nothing can be disproven, first of all, by science or anything else. But the truths that they describe can't be disproven, not just the scientific facts that are in there about humanity and how we you know, conduct ourselves and how things are. It's never changed, especially Genesis chapter three. Nothing's different now. And obviously with the whole two become one flesh. Yeah. And uh, I just want to say before I get out of here, you know, I understand all that, too. Like there's always been a drive in me to be married and have a family and stuff. And I don't know where that came from. But it made a lot of sense to me as a Christian that it, it's God put it there, right? And it's a strong drive. It's nothing I did in and of myself. I didn't come up with it. And so when I look at scripture, that profound truth speaks to me. Even if I was not a believer, it would still somehow speak to me on some level. But anyway, thank you again. I look forward to this study. This is good stuff. Well, thank I'm you. Out. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate it very much. And uh, I, I would agree just in my own experience with manhood, uh, exactly that, that even in my younger years when I thought, well, I don't know if marriage and children are for me, deep down, you still know that they are. And there's some kind of unexplainable drive, even when you think that you're going to school and getting a job and doing all these things so you can do what? Like make money or, I don't know, have a nice car or something like that. In the end, none of it matters unless you have that family for whom you're providing and, and building a legacy to to pass on. So yeah, uh, very wise words, and, and thank you for that. Robert, did you have any other thoughts on it? No, I think that was that was great. I feel very much the same way. I do want to say that, like, you know, there's a verse that we read in John. I think it's in John. I hope I'm not making that up. When when the disciples essentially, they tell Jesus, hey, what you're teaching is, is like too much. It's, we can't, it's too controversial, essentially. I'm paraphrasing. And Jesus says, well, leave me then. And then I think it's Peter who says, where would we go? Who else has the truth? And, and, and again, I'll paraphrase that. But when I read Genesis, I very much feel that. And I'm just being completely sincere here. It's like, I read it and I'm like, this is true. This is true. Like, I, where else would I go? This is true. And I know it in my bones. And so I, I feel that way. Denby, I see your request. Uh, William, I'm going to get to William just because uh, we came to you first, but uh, I will give you a chance just to chime in with a final thought before we're finished up here. So, uh, William, if you have a thought, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you can hear me with this particular headset. I, I can't hear you at all, William. I don't know about you, Robert. Uh, uh, no. I don't know if you're maybe far away from the mic or bad connection. I don't know. Uh, no, no, Much I was better. using, I, I'm, I'm using a poor Bluetooth headset. Yeah, Just exactly. Turn right. that off. Is that better? Yep. Way better. All right. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I have a comment cause we, uh, going over this, particularly comparing it to other mythologies as mm. a nerd for that kind of thing, it kind of brings up what is one of my favorite, um, details of, uh, for lack of a better word, Christian mythology in the sense that we've been uh kind of using it the last few meetings uh a lot of gods in a lot of mythologies their name is essentially you know the domain that they're in control of and this is like most noticeable with some of the greek ones like gaia the earth goddess who is also the earth there, there's a cool thing about god that uh, in christianity and that what his his name means the the one 
that is unique to him that um is in english uh usually pronounced as either uh jehovah or yahweh because we don't know how it was actually said the what it actually means is i am it's i which stands out to me as being really cool because it is both a uh, rebuke to a lot of the other religions and that it is the name of this god is i'm real and implying that they are not which is uh cool in that sense but also just in the sense of the reason he can create everything is because he's the basis for all of it so that's a that's a comment that i thought it was a worth bringing up when talking about this sort of foundation for christianity as well as a fun fun tidbit about uh, a lot of the religions as well yeah robert your thoughts well, again i fully agree i I think that many Christians miss the implications of that, of, of, you know, what he just brought up. The fact that God's name means I am. He's the beginning and the end. He's the necessary being. He's the foundation of reality. He's the one thing that could not exist. It, yeah, the implications are just amazing. All right, we're a couple of minutes past uh, the hour. I know Denby had one thought he wanted to, uh, to discuss. Do you have time, Robert? Yeah. Okay. Denby, let's do a final thought and then we'll wrap up. Oh, yeah. Uh, just uh, just two things. The first is, um, I'm sure that you've noticed this too, Robert, is that uh, all other mythologies, uh, in the end, they justify human passions. So if you have lust for someone, you pray to Aphrodite or Eros you know, Venus, as the Romans would have said, if you want to kill your neighbor, you pray to, to Ares or Mars. You know, if you want to um, steal something, well, well, you know, there's a God who did that. There's, you know, it's so, but um, from the beginning uh, in the Bible, the human's desire is not justified. We eat of the fruit from the tree which God forbade us to eat from it's not like oh well you know just there's there there's this other god telling you to do no it was another animal it was an animal not not like the uh, a master of of creation you know so it's like um and and you notice that later with in in uh with joseph joseph becomes uh virtually the pharaoh but the bible says he is not a god in any sense he's just a man who serves god do you have thoughts on that robert again i mean i, I fully agree i i'm so glad for all the comments that people are making but yes that the one thing i didn't get to tonight was the original intent for creation, the fact that it was good, and then the fall, I, I did intend to get to that. I'll cover it next time, and then we'll just jump straight into Acts. But yeah, I, I find that to also be such a deep truth of Genesis, this idea that we all have this sense that things are not what they should be. And that actually is it, it's hard to justify, right? If we don't know any different, why would we know that things are not what they should be? But again, more, more about that next time. We'll talk about it. Yeah, that's a good uh, teaser there because that is that is a fascinating question. I think we could talk about for an hour um, without a concept of that ideal of that perfect. How do you know 
that the status quo is bad? How do you know what the good is? How do you know what we're aiming for without that kind of foundational concept? Uh, so I look forward to discussing that. Do you have any other thoughts before we finish up? No, that's it. Thank you for everyone who sat through the three weeks of Genesis. I know that you kind of had to trust me to get to this point and I appreciate it. Okay. Well, thanks for joining tonight, guys. Appreciate it. As always, we will be back uh, next Friday and every Friday going forward, 9 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, if you missed any part of the study and you'd like to listen back or you'd like to read uh, what Robert had to say about the, the content tonight in a written form, head on over to the Bible study page of the website. You can find it on my homepage, mattchristensenmedia.com. You can also message Robert through that page or you can get in touch with me as well. So thanks for joining and we will see you next week, I hope. Have a good night.